Hello, this is Will, your host of Pax Podcastia. We are going to be talking about the etymology of three words in ancient Greek. These words come up in the New Testament quite a bit, uh, so they're good to know if you are a believer or if you're just a, a scholar of any kind of the New Testament. So I'll start with a little story about how I like to pick Bible translations. I started out with a copy of the Oxford English Dictionary. Wow, Oxford English Bible, I guess. I didn't know what translation it was, but you know, I saw the name Oxford. Uh, that was the first Bible I've read, and I just uh, started reading. And you know, it seemed like normal to me. You know, it seemed like I had a good good flow to the words, uh, the Bible speak, as it were, uh, wasn't too heavy, and I like that translation. Now, I didn't know it was the New Revised Standard Version. I actually bought a copy recently, not knowing I already had this Bible kind of tucked away in my closet. So I kind of liked the, the more plain style of Bible, where it just told you what the words actually mean, rather than, you know, a kind of more archaic more poetic version of the Bible, like the King James Version. And don't get me wrong, like the King James Version is one of my favorites. Um, I actually, my favorite translation of the Bible is the New King James Version because it does take that kind of Bible speak and turn it into a more modern rendition. Just Google audio Bible, like any book of the Bible, uh, there's a really good, um, someone posted all the books of a New King James Version audio Bible. So you can look that up. It's pretty, it's pretty good. It's well produced. Um, there's the famous actors and stuff that read the words and play the characters and all that. You know, so I've always been torn between kind of more literal translation and a kind of more poetic one. King James Version, it's good because it's a poetic, you know, it has a good poetic feeling to it. It, you know, is arguably better at drawing out emotions. Um, but in my opinion, it's always nice to know the nuances of the Greek. When, I'm, when I mention Greek in this podcast, I don't mean modern Greek because that is actually a whole different language. Uh, not wholly different. There are a lot of similarities, actually. But when, I, when I'm speaking in Greek, I'm talking about ancient Greek. So this is the language of Plato, Homer, um, and the writers of the New Testament with slight to significant, from slight to significant variations uh, between those languages. But, so when I talk about Greek, that's what I'm talking about. So the oldest version of the New Testament is from the third century, and it is made, they use uh, what's called Koine Greek, which basically means the common tongue at the time, what you would speak in common parlance, perhaps, or just, just so it's easy for everyone to understand. And the King James Version is very like that, too, um, especially in a lot of parts of the King James Version, there are monosyllabic whole sentences where there's like 80% of the words are monosyllabic, so one syllable. So it's like, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. You know, very simple language, um, which I think the Greek, the Koine Greek captures well. So anyway, so just a little backstory. 
the ancient Greek ancient Greek was the lingua franca at the time. It's likely that some original manuscripts were in Greek. Uh, we have fragments of Greek manuscripts from the second century, which kind of coincide with the the ones we found later. But the first full ones are in the third century. Uh, we're talking about AD when I say century, just so that's clear. Um, over 6,000 Greek manuscripts or fragments from the centuries after Christ have been found. Uh, they mostly line up with each other, which is uh, incredible. There are a few lines which scholars disagree with, disagree amongst themselves. So I just want to get to, so that now that we're kind of done with the backstory, I kind of want to get to, I do want to get to the uh, kind of point of this podcast, which is to, um, I'm going to take you through some Greek words. I also want to inspire you, if you're a Christian or interested in Christian studies, why you should learn Greek. And you might think to yourself, isn't learning a language hard? Why should I learn this whole language? I have to speak it all the time, practice, blah, blah, blah. You don't really have to, you don't have to speak it. You just have to learn how to read it. It's not like you need to read at a college level, just like how it was in school, where it's like, okay, now you're reading a 10th grade level. Now you're reading a 12th grade level even though that was kind of arbitrary, but I digress. Uh, all you need to do is learn how to pronounce and read the words, which it takes a day or less of memorization and study of the alphabet. Then you can buy a classical Greek to English dictionary and make sure it's like classical Greek, not modern Greek. And you can buy a Greek New Testament, but you know, if you don't want to spend some money on that, I understand. There are some useful websites that are available. I just actually found yesterday when I was doing some research for this podcast, greekbible.com has a function, I think it might be the only function, but you type in the Bible verse, so Matthew 5, 7 or whatever, and then it'll tell you the Greek, and then you can hover over each word and it'll tell you the definitions, the nuanced definitions in Greek. So you could really use that as your single resource if you just want to look up a particular word. And there's also, I haven't really used this, but there's a website called perseus.tufts.edu, which is more of a dictionary. We will put the links in the description uh, somehow so you can, uh, so you don't have to write it down. So just some more reasons why I should study Greek. <laughs> if you believe that the Bible is the word of God, or if you attach a lot of importance to its rich meaning, is extremely important to understand the Greek. It's really the next best thing to the Aramaic which Jesus spoke. I think it's probably once removed from that. So in this podcast, I might have mentioned this before, but I'll just say it again. We're gonna go, we're gonna do a deep dive into three common words in the New Testament. These words are logos, pisteuo, and diabolos. I hope that I can show you that the study of ancient Greek can add even more meaning to the New Testament than you can possibly imagine. Seriously though, it'll add so much nuance to the words of the Bible. I actually like haven't looked at scholarly work on etymology. I kind of just do my own thing with it. So take whatever I say with a grain of salt. I think it makes sense though, the way I do it. Just to reiterate how to learn Greek, so learn to read the script, number one. Number two, look up the words which you want to learn more about in the Greek New Testament. And three, look up the words in the Greek to English dictionary and similar words. 
which we're going to do today. As a bonus, you can look up the Proto-Indo-European root of the word and see what history it had before its use in the New Testament. So now that all that intro stuff is done, we're just going to jump right in to the first word, which is logos. And it's not, I don't think it, I didn't look this up, but I don't think it has much to do with logo. It probably does. But this is logos with an S at the end. Here's some related words. These are taken from the Oxford Classical Greek Dictionary. Logion means oracle, you know, like the oracle of Delphi, I suppose. Uh, logas, logas means gathered, comma, picked. You know, like you're picking apples, picking corn out of a field, something like that, gathering things together. Logia means collection, like a collection for the poor. You're, um, you're doing a collection for, I don't know, maybe you're doing a food drive or something like that. I think that's kind of what they're talking about. We're just gonna move on to the Proto-Indo-European sense, which is to gather, set in order, can mean to consider, to choose, can also mean read or speak. So there's this sense of gathering the words you wanna speak from wherever they come from, your brain, or from outside, as we're gonna discuss in a second, putting them together in a structure that can be read, spoken, or uh, possibly written too. This is kind of taken from the Wikipedia page. <laughs> so take it with a grain of salt, uh, like much in this podcast. But Heraclitus was a guy in Greek antiquity, and he thought Logos is an independent entity, a universal source of words that anyone can tap into. We're moving further in history, around the fourth, maybe third, fourth century BC. Aristotle has his famous distinctions of logos as a reasoned argument. You know, you can imagine it basically how Socrates functions in Plato's dialogues trying to find the reason of things in the world, using words to narrow down on what makes sense, you could say. Now, ethos is kind of a moral character, you might say, or maybe the moral character of an age. You can imagine, like in a courtroom, people are trying to establish the moral character or denigrate the moral character of someone, depending on if they're defending or prosecuting them. Now, pathos is like telling a story to put your listeners in a certain frame of mind. Uh, So in a courtroom, you might tell a story of how someone convicted of your client crime if you're a criminal lawyer and you're defending someone you might say that like oh this guy looked really guilty too in a similar circumstance but look and I guess that's more logos honestly but you can kind of imagine like it's almost like telling a myth some kind of emotional story to put the jury in a certain frame of mind if we're talking in the courtroom. Scott Adams has a good thing, which he actually got from someone else, where, you know, if you don't know what to say, you you should have a story to tell in every situation so that when you have to give a speech, you can start with that and kind of set the mood. Um, maybe have a series of stories you tell according to the situation. That's kind of a, doesn't really matter, but so he has logos, ethos, and pathos. Those are his three modes of argument. Now, Philo, who I believe was in the 2nd century AD, maybe BC, I think it was AD, he was, he was Jewish, 
he thought that the Logos was the firstborn of God. Uh, I think he thought that it was like the first, which which has to do with the Aryan heresy, uh, which we should probably talk about in another podcast. It's kind of complicated. I don't even understand it uh, at the moment. But basically, Aryan was like, Jesus was the first of God's creations, but not co not like the same as him. It almost created a rupture in the church where the emperor of Rome, Constantine, I believe it was, was called a convention of sorts so they could work it out. It's, I think it's obvious who won that one. And, you know, finally we get to Christianity. It denotes Jesus Christ. The first use of it, official use of it, I suppose, was from John 1, which I'm just going to read to you from the King James Version because it's the most poetic as we were discussing. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. The life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. Powerful lines there from John, first chapter in John. Briefly, I just want to talk about Islam because it kind of connects. I believe it was in Sufism mainly where there's this idea of uncreated and created. So uncreated is God, created is humans and stuff, and the Logos is kind of the intermediary between them, kind of a top-down idea coming from God, the uncreated, to humans and stuff, the created. The Sufis believe that people like Jesus, Muhammad, and I think Moses too, manifested this Logos, this divine word, as it were. Oh yeah, and then there's Plotinus. I really should have wrote down the centuries where these guys existed, but I think he was AD something like 200 AD, he thought that there was a trinity of sorts with the Logos, that there were three, except it was more, it was more hierarchical. So the one is at the top, the spirit is in the middle, which is Logos, and the soul is at the bottom. And there's movement down from the one towards the soul, you know, kind of into the Logos, and down towards the soul, and there's movement up. Oh, you know, I made a little mistake here. So it goes the one, the spirit, the soul. The movement down is logos. So the word of God coming down is logos. That's the movement. Eros is the movement up, which kind of is weird. <laughs> From the soul to the one, through the spirit. So there's no co-eternality, but there is this movement up and down, which is somewhat similar. That was Plotinus. Uh, and we get into more recent history. We have Jung, who we discussed in another podcast, where he says woman's psychology is based on eros, which is psychic, psychic relatedness. So kind of connection by means of the psyche, kind of a deeper emotional connection, you might say. M and male psychology is based on logos, which is 
is Jung defines as objective interest. When you're objectively interested in something, you usually want to find the right words to use to describe it and keep talking about that endlessly. Like, I mean, if you just, if you know guys who are kind of intellectual, like me and Blake, we loved just doing that, just breaking things down. And, you know, that's what I'm doing right now, too. And if I were maybe more influenced by feminine psychology, I guess you could call it, I would be looking at the people involved and how they interact emotionally speaking which is kind of more of a wordless way of approaching it, whereas Logos obviously involves a lot of words. Well, we're getting to the summary of Logos here, which is my personal definitions and kind of discussion in your dialogue, if you will. I'm basically going to read what I wrote here. So I basically wrote a little essay. So here it goes. Maybe with some digressions, we'll see. There's a sense that words are gathered from the thin air, but obviously they must come from greater places. Heidegger, a philosopher, is usually incomprehensible to me. For example, Being in Time is his iconic work that I cannot read. There's this book called What is Called Thinking, which is legible. And in that book, he questioned whether the words think and thank, like to thank someone for something, were not related. He thought those were might be related. As in, if you think, you must necessarily be thankful to the source of that thought. You might say that thoughts and words come from inside you, but what evidence is there of this, do you think? The experience of thinking, what it feels like to think, speak, or write, doesn't it feel more like some elves are going through a huge sack of words and throwing the words into your brain in a particular order before you speak them. That's what it seems like to me. Not in this case, because I'm reading what I wrote, but when I was writing this, that's what it seemed like. It's, it's clear that very few people experience direct contact with the divine, yet God is supposed to have direct connection with people, right? So how do you reconcile those two things? You go to church on Sunday to feel that connection, don't you? What exactly do you feel when you go to a Sunday service? Certainly not direct connection or experience with God. You can almost say that the Christian religion rejects direct experience with God the Father, I suppose. I'm no theologian, but it seems like, you know, if you look at John 14, 16, this is New King James Version, because that's what one comes to mind. I did this by memory, not to brag or anything. So this is John 14, 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you would have known me, you would have known my Father also. So there's this sense that you have to go through Jesus to get to the Father. And of course, the Gospel of John talks about the Word becoming flesh, which equals Jesus Christ. The Christian idea of the Logos is a framework or model for human connection with God. As in Plotinus's Trinity, there's a movement upward as well as a movement downward. God passes down his commandments and wishes by means of men, angels, which literally means messengers in Greek, and Christ himself. You might say that Christ is by definition the perfect segue or intermediary between man and God. He is fully man and fully God. In him, there is literally no gap between God and man. In other words, the imperfect, you might say, communication between God and man is made perfect inside the dual archetypes of Christ. Those are the, the, on the one hand, the archetype of man, and the other, the archetype of God. Something, this is kind of a side note, but 
Christianity and other religions seem to argue that some archetypes are real and transcend temporal phenomena. I don't think that's debatable. So Christ masters the world of words. To my mind, the sayings attributed to him are universally applicable to all humanity, especially those sayings in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Through his mastery of words, by being possessed by the archetype of the Logos, there is a Christian tradition of keeping to true words even unto death, uh, for example, martyrdom. For Christ also spoke true words and was crucified for it. There are a few sayings of Jesus where he speaks, the, speaks of words. In Matthew 12, 37, from the King James Version, because I don't know this one by heart. By thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Also from Matthew 19 through 20. When they deliver you up. Oh, this is, okay, so let me, some context. So he's saying that you'll be, basically you'll be called before governors and kings for my namesake, something like that. And the next line is, when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the spirit of your father which speaketh in you. So I'm just about out of steam on this one, but in conclusion, Christianity lays a lot of importance on speaking truth, no matter what, no matter what. <laughs> and this doctrine actually conflicts with the next word we're going to discuss. And I'll give you a few seconds to guess the word. See, see how good your memory is. Okay, did you guess it? It's... Diabolos, which basically means devil, but it has more definitions than that. Diabolos means slanderer, or it can mean fiend or devil. Some related words, which I think perhaps use some similar roots and definitely use that. Uh, so the word diabolos, it starts with dia, which means through or across, something along those lines. And then bolos is, comes from balo, uh, which is to throw. So it is a throwing to the other side, essentially, which we'll get into in just a moment. Some related words are diaboro, diaboros, which means eating through or consuming. Um, there is the uh, diabole, which means slander. This is, the, this is the noun version. Just to give you some linguistic context. Diabolos is an adjective, but it's also what's called a substantive. If you ever studied Spanish, there is a word uh, viejo, which means it can mean old, or it can mean essentially old one, or like elderly person. So it is an adjective used to describe a noun, but it also can be used as a noun. Um, Greek is the same way in a lot of, with a lot of adjectives. You know, the adjective diabolos would mean like slanderous, and then the substantive noun would be slanderer. You can tell from slanderous and slanderer how we, how we in English um, kind of distinguish the two, but in Greek, often there isn't a distinction, uh, just to explain that. So diabole can mean slander, calumny, can mean false accusation, reproach, infamy, suspicion, hatred. Now that the verb for version of diabolos is diabalo, which means 
throw to throw over or carry across, disunite, slander, accuse falsely, or abuse. Uh, it can mean to cheat. And then there's another one which I found kind of interesting that was somewhat similar. I think it uses the same roots um, in terms of bowl, balo, and this is, let's see if I can pronounce this right, diabuleumai, which means discuss pro and con, discuss thoroughly, which it's like, you know, if you're kind of discussing anything thoroughly, uh, there is a pro and con, there is like they had this idea when they were discussing doctrine in the Catholic Church, I believe, uh, called Devil's Advocate, which you've heard in common parlance, but it had a technical meaning back then as, and maybe it still does in the church, as someone who argues against a proposition, which it still does to this day, right? Yes, it does. Okay, we're moving on to the Proto-Indo-European root, which is guele something like that, which means to throw or reach. It can also mean to pierce. And that was from etymology, or etymonline.net, or dot, no, .com. Etymonline.com. That's great research for etymology. Uh, we'll try to put that in the description, too, if I, if I can remember. <laughs> so, Gwell has three definitions. I mean, pierce, destroy, kill, qualm, quell. Second one can be move about or throw. In Greek and Latin, diabolic means to throw a slant, attack, slander. And we have this quote that's in every single modern movie relating to the devil <laughs> by this guy named, uh, I forget his first name, but Baldelaire from the Diabolic School, which goes, The cleverest ruse of the devil is to persuade us he does not exist. Everyone's heard that before, but I thought I'd just throw it in. <laughs> so the analysis of this word... Um, so now I'm going to read my little script here. Like a game of catch, the word diabolos implies a certain playfulness, or it only seems that way, dot, dot, dot. Either an individual entity, oh yeah, I forgot to discuss that part. In the King James Version, you know, you'll see these words like, Mary Magdalene was possessed by seven devils. And you're like, what, there's seven devils? And it's like, no, 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 it's just a, a subordinate evil spirit afflicting humans. So there's this kind of movement between the general and the specific. So it can mean an individual entity that lies, or the father of lies, which Jesus mentions in John 8:44. Now, development seems to be seems to go, like I said, between specific and general, but the general movement has been from a specific devil, from a specific like minor devil to like, who is the lord of devils? Who is the lord of evil? And this is in, relig in religious thought. This has been the case. And this happens as people across time start to conclude there must be a source of all evil which possesses people. This is true archetypically. Anger possesses us, so does pride in a sense, so does lust, etc., etc. The Satan, the Satan in Job is portrayed as an agent or off-branch of God might say it's because he hasn't fallen yet. Once Satan has fallen, at least in the mind of man, he has become archetypal evil itself, or evil itself. Uh, before Satan fell, he was merely an adversary. Uh, Satan literally means one who is against, one who is adversarial. Anyone can be a Satan in the Hebrew sense, therefore. Every time you disagree, you are doing this in some sense. 
But the Christian idea of Satan, the devil, or Diabolos, is that evil lies outside of you, and that with God's help, and with the help of truth, you have the power to resist evil. And of course, there's original sin. That's a whole different thing, I think. But you know that the devil, you can accept the devil in your heart, and that'll totally mess you up. And there's this line from Flowers of St. Francis, which is a movie uh, they made, a post-war Italian realist movie, I believe. Rossellini, I believe, is the director. Great movie, if you haven't seen it. It's about St. Francis of Assisi. There's this part where St. Clair comes to visit the brothers of St. Francis, and one of the brothers, he's just kind of telling them what happened the night before, and he's like, basically, like, the devil came to my door last night, and I was like, I won't open the door. Go away. You aren't welcome here. I had faith, blah, 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 and he went away. It's a really moving scene, and that really stuck with me, that you can kind of push evil away by conscious will, which is the basis of Christian morality. Not the basis, but it's an aspect of it, for sure. Very important aspect. The, that conscious will can, conscious will and faith in God, I guess, can make you resistant to evil. Now that we discussed two of the words, the last word is apesteuo, which means actually, that, so this is the verb version, and it means belief, so it's belief and faith, which I found interesting that we have this distinction between belief and faith, which I've never really understood and probably will not do justice to here. But my understanding through this study, I will get to in just a moment of those two words. So pisteuo means believe, trust, confide in, put faith in. It can mean entrust something to. It can mean be believed or trusted in the passive sense of the word. And the noun version is pistis, which means trust, faith, Belief, it can mean credit, trust, security, assurance. I believe that's in the in a financial sense. It can mean pledge of faith, warrant or oath, treaty, like a treaty uh, to end a war, hostage, I suppose in the sense of like a hostage, taking a hostage in wartime or like in a bank robbery is um, kind of guaranteeing that there is action in good faith towards your desired end. It can mean argument or proof of something. If we're looking at the Proto-European root, believe, there is a sense that is kind of like the verb version of beloved, like to beloved something or to love something. The root is spelled, I don't know how you would pronounce it, it's L-E-U-B as in boy, H as in hotel. It means to care, desire, love. It can also mean I think this is like believe in the medieval sense, perhaps, means to trust in God. So to kind of count God, to count God as the beloved. And if you think about it, if you love and care for something, you will trust in that thing. For example, your wife or your family. So that's a sense of belief. And then faith, which is the other side of pisteuo, is um, the root, Indo-European root for that is spelled B H E I. T is in delta, H is in hotel. And that means trust, confide, persuade. It can mean loyalty to a person based on promise or duty. I believe that's from edomonline.com. I'm also using, for these Indo-European roots, I'm using this book. It is called The Origins of English Words, A Discursive Dictionary of Indo-European Roots by Joseph T. Shipley. That's where I'm getting some of these Indo-European definitions. My analysis of pisteuo in the Christian context, in the sense it's used in the New Testament, denotes both faith and belief, as I said, 
No wonder we get confused which one is which. When you believe strongly in something, you will give your life as a ransom or make yourself a hostage for that something. You might propose to make a covenant with God, giving over your life to him in exchange for whatever good things he wills to give you. You pledge loyalty to God, you make oaths to him, and you rely on his guidance, his commandments, you rely on however you choose to conceive of him, or whoever you rely on to help you conceive of him for you, as like a priest or a pastor, for example, some kind of spiritual guide who is knowledgeable and who has studied stuff a lot. I think what the word pisteuo teaches us is that before you give your life over to someone or something, as I spoke of a moment ago, it is first necessary to love that thing or person. Um, be believe is to be loved. You hopefully get married only if you love your fiancé. You ideally convert only when you experience profound love for God. You devote your life to art only if you love art. Love comes before commitment in our personal lives, and even a modicum of trust and respect is necessary before you are able to negotiate terms of peace with a longtime enemy. You do not commit to peace and hope that your enemy will love you enough to do the same, but both love and commitment can go hand in hand. They support one another like the two sides of an arch, and this is really corny, I don't even know why I wrote this, but if you ever build an arch in your garden, you might do well to call it pisteuo. These are the three words I discussed. This is the podcast, basically. So I hope you have developed a keen appreciation for the ancient Greek words and nuances. I think it's someone once said, I can't remember the name, that the history of the world basically lies in the history of words. History of the world lies in the history of words. And I think that's true, you know, whenever I learn words, the etymology of words, it like totally makes sense. I might be surprised, but study of etymology makes you, it's just such a thrill to me, at least, to find the origins of words and kind of incorporate that into my understanding of them. Especially when you're talking about very important language such as the New Testament. I think it's really important that we understand what the Greek words originally meant, because that is the closest thing to um, the words of the New Testament writers or the words of Jesus. I think it is your duty, if you do believe it is the word of God, to have some knowledge of the Greek or, you know, the Latin too, if you're a Catholic, I think that's important. I will say <laughs> that the, you know, the English, there are so many translations of the Bible that by reading multiple translations, you can kind of get the sense of what these words mean. Personally, I really like to look into the meanings myself and to not rely on other people's interpretations of the meanings. And I think it's okay, you know, like if you're a Catholic, which Blake is, that you rely on the wisdom of thousands of years of church doctrine and, you know, church thinking in regards to the scriptures. But there is such a satisfaction of finding something out for yourself, kind of delighting in that. I don't know how else to put it. <laughs> this is a good podcast. I didn't, I wasn't sure if I would make it through it. Just a reminder for how, if you want to learn Greek, which I think everyone should, and it's really like 
like you'd be bringing back this language back from the dead essentially <laughs> it's not too many people study it um i think greek and greek and latin too they're both uh understudied you could say in the modern sense and i think if you believe in the heritage of uh, our culture and maintaining that through understanding of the thought processes that went on in ancient days, then I think you should study Greek and other ancient languages too. So just a reminder of the method. Number one, learn to read the script. It can take you a day. Look up words which you want to learn more about in the Greek New Testament. So say there's a, there's a word or a verse you're having trouble with. It might be good just to look up the Greek. You know, maybe you don't even need to know how to learn to read the script with that GreekBible.com. But I think it's helpful and I think it's badass. You can look up the words in the Greek to English dictionary and use similar words uh, to kind of um, narrow down what it might mean or have meant. As a bonus, um, you can look up Proto-Indo-European. Some call it Indo-European root of the word. See what history it had before it was used in the New Testament. Thanks a lot, guys, for listening. This has been really fun, actually. I am so glad to have done this. I hope to give you guys analysis of more Greek words and other words so that we can both learn together. Thank you so much for listening. Really appreciate it. Bye-bye now.